0: Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we had our first week, of course, at 2020 Action and Standard over at SCG Wista, and I think I think we blew it, Brian.
1: I honestly don't know how I feel about our predictions because, like, we got a little bit right, we got a little bit wrong. We saw some things that maybe weren't obvious to a bunch of people, and then there's some just blatant misses. Like, I don't actually think there was a copy of Flood of Tears anywhere. Like, anywhere in the top 16 of the Classic, in the top 32 of the Open. So that card was just a complete and total miss. And that was the biggest surprise of the weekend, really, for me. Because the card's good, right? Are we just stupid? Like, do we not understand magic anymore and things have dramatically changed?
0: What did we do wrong? I mean... I mean, it's possible that that is true, actually, but (laughs) I still think that that Flood of Tears is completely reasonable. It's just a metagame thing, right? I mean, if the format is going to a place where Mono Red and Mono Blue are two of the better decks, then obviously you don't really want Flood of Tears anywhere in your deck. But if you're expecting a bunch of mid-range battles and things like white aggro decks, then I think Flood of Tears is very good. And we did kind of see Teamer Elementals not really put up as much of a result as you would expect, given all the hype.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if that was a misbuilding thing or a just preparation thing, if it was soundly wearing the target going in to week one. But I mean, the story of this tournament is, of course, the winner. It's always going to be the winner. And maybe that's unfair. Maybe that doesn't give the clearest picture. But based on the winner of this tournament, which was, of course, Aaron Barish playing mono red, we got things... About as wrong as you can possibly get them. It was the lowest rated of our eight decks to watch when we were doing our little review last week.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't know. So I, it was kind of tongue in cheek the way I opened it up. Like, I don't think that mono red winning uh, necessarily invalidates every other thing that we said, because we also talked about how mono blue is very good. Mono blue got seconds. The only deck to put multiple copies in the top eight was Orzop Vampires, which was also on our list. Feather made top eight in the hands of Oliver Tomaiko. And then there were some Esper decks in contention. Uh, one of them made the top eight Esper Hero. And Teamer Elementals was in top eight. And Paul Muller went like 10 3 or something and ended up getting ninth. Uh, right. So like all the, all the decks were there. Simic Nexus in 10th and 11th. So... Uh, aside from us grading mono red low and then mono red actually winning, I think we did a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, I would also note I mean, not trying to bail us out or anything, but actually very little mono red representation amongst the top 32, only three copies. So certainly not a huge percentage of the field, but yeah, won the tournament. You know, Aaron is an incredible player and. She certainly, no matter what she's playing, she has a very substantial edge over the field. But especially when it comes to aggressive decks, certainly the person you want piloting your aggressive deck in week one, if you want it to put up good results.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Slam dunk. It's also worth noting that her list is a lot different than the list that we were basically grading. Like, I don't think that we tried Chandra Spitfire in Monterey, and I, I think the jury might still be out on that. Is as far as like whether or not that card is good, but I've been playing with Ember Hauler and you know, no Viashino Pyromancer, no Wizards Lightning on Arena, and it's been solid. Ember Hauler's been pretty nice, actually.
1: Yeah, if you haven't seen the list, you should go look at it. But as you mentioned, the big changes from the stock mono red list we have seen are the additions of Chandra Spitfire and Ember Hauler taking the place of that Wizards package that we previously saw. No Wizards Lightning here, no Viashino Pyromancer, and I like the move. It feels like you have a lot more reach, a lot more explosiveness. And again, where Simic Nexus was, I believe, the most played deck on day two. In that kind of environment, what a fantastic setup this is to have your mono red deck able to produce this burst damage and to have some additional sources of non-creature damage available to you.
0: Yeah, you, you better start root snaring on turn four and, mm-hmm. you know... Turn, turn 4 through turn 10, basically, like you're going to need it. Uh, no Experimental Frenzies, I think, is very, very good in the Nexus matchup specifically, but probably a lot weaker everywhere else. So this this might be one of the things where a card like Chandra Spitfire takes down the week one open and maybe is never seen from again. But I do think that Spitfire is very well positioned against the various Simic decks.
1: Yeah, one, one of the things about Spitfire that you mentioned as we were talking before, show was just how vulnerable it is to something like Cerulean Drake. And I think if there was a flaw to the general room's preparation for this tournament, it was the lack of Cerulean Drake in a bunch of places, and Aaron certainly able to leverage that absence to great success. When it came to the finals, was paired against Ross Merriam playing mono-blue aggro. I really thought Ross had the edge in the matchup if you had asked me to choose a winner, I would have chosen Ross ahead of time. There are some kind of non-games, a lot of mulliganing, so I wouldn't take too much away from the actual result. But it just seemed to me like it was Mono Blues Tournament to win, which would have felt a lot better from our end because that was the deck that we both ultimately landed on going into this week.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Ross, I, his his list isn't close to what i would have recommended Mm -hmm. and i think ross was really going off of autumn's list that they wrote about uh last monday on scg and it's just weird to me like two lookouts dispersal i mean like you can finally maximize that card right so like why would you not go hard on lookouts dispersal not that it necessarily matters as far as the mono red matchup is concerned uh i do think it's like slightly better than wizard's retort but not by much but yeah, I mean, I I think that this this is week one. These decks are likely going to change a lot. I would not put too much stock into oh, this is what Mono Red is supposed to look like, or this is what Mono Blue is supposed to look like. And even as far as like the results are technically concerned, like yeah, Mono Red won the tournament. But like you said, this this was kind of Mono Blue's tournament to win. I think it looked really well positioned.
1: No, I'm I'm right there with you. Was a bit surprised by the outcome. I guess the next point I want to circle back around to. You mentioned it briefly. But here we are again, a tournament where people started getting real excited about Simic Nexus. And if you look down the list of players playing Simic Nexus in this tournament, it's kind of a who's who of faces from the SCG Tour. The folks you expect to do well, who routinely do well on the SCG Tour. A lot of them with Simic Nexus in their hands. As I mentioned, the most played deck going into day two the most uh, well-represented one, I think followed closely behind by Simic Flash. We'll get to that deck in a moment. It says a lot about the yeah. quality of Simic right now, but ultimately, no top eight slots. Do you want to make anything of that? Or is the difference between you know Dylan Donegan finishing 10th, Sam Lawrence being in 11th, uh, Evan Whitehouse in 14th, is the difference between those kind of placements and the top eight so small as to be almost meaningless?
0: I think it is normally, but I also want to argue that Simic Nexus is just bad. So, Okay, tell us why. It's kind of tough. I just feel like if people are rightfully prepared and know how to play against the deck and don't walk into stuff like sideboard Biogenic Ooze, I just think that the deck is fundamentally flawed. Like, you can't miss a land drop. You absolutely need everything to come come together. Like, you need your draws to be great, and you need your opponent's draws to be, like, kind of medium. And obviously there are matchups like, you know, Teamer, right? Like, Teamer is just at a huge disadvantage, any sort of mopey midrange deck. And you can make the case for formats where there is a lot of mopey mid range. like, Oh, okay. Like this is the time to play Simic Nexus and, you know, like uh, mythic championship three. Right. But realistically, I think those situations are few and far between and the, the people on the SCG tour just constantly trying to play Simic Nexus and are really just underperforming in general with the deck. I think, I think it should be a, a wake up call for these folks.
1: It's funny you mention that because friend of the podcast Kane Reinhard was over in our Discord and he's been one of the most fervent supporters of Simic Nexus has certainly done well with it on the SDG tour. He said that this tournament was his breaking point and he wants to use it as a stepping stone to make better deck selections in the future because he was so disappointed with his choice of Simic Nexus for this event.
0: Good. <laughs> Good K- Kane is smart. Agreed. Yeah, Kane is smart. Uh, I, I I think it took a little bit longer than it should have, honestly. But uh, as as long as you get there eventually, you know, like that's kind of all that matters. And hopefully that yeah, you know, it seems like Kane has learned from the experience, right? And then you see people like Oliver Tamayo, you know, picking up Feather, which is a deck that has not been very well respected, is just underrated across the board. And he puts up like a very easy, very casual top eight, right? Like. Deck selection is a big deal, especially in standard. And I I think there is some merit to having something like Simic Nexus that is just like a comfort pick. But realistically, your comfort pick should not be a bad deck. Like if Mono Red is your comfort pick, then okay, cool. You know, I'm fine with that.
1: So I will say a little sneak preview from our friends at Mox Insights, who are going to be, of course, breaking down matchup percentages from this event they suggested that Simic Nexus may not be as bad of a choice as we're making it out to be. We'll have to see what the numbers actually reflect. And of course, all of these numbers always come from a place of pretty small sample sizes. We never get large enough sample sizes in Magic to actually state anything determinatively. But I always like to take a look at them and see how they color my perceptions of the format. I do want to go back to Oliver Tomiko's Boris Feather deck. This was a deck no, that we both on, graded.
0: Go ahead. your thing. We're, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about Simic Nexus. I'm gonna run this into the ground real quick. So do it. If you if you look at the Mox insight numbers, and I haven't seen them, I could have guessed what you were gonna say when you when you first started talking about them. I bet that it says like, oh, Simic Nexus is like a fifty-seven percent favorite against the field. And then you take the people that are playing Simic Nexus, mm-hmm. Dylan Donegan, Sam Lawrence. Abe Corrigan, Zan Syed, all these people. I wonder what would happen if you take their win percentage of playing literally anything other than Simic Nexus and compare those two side by side. Because I bet they win like 65 to 70% of their matches on the SCG Tour. Maybe that's a little high, but regardless, I I guarantee they're giving up something like 8 to 10% equity by playing Simic Nexus.
1: There's an argument that their base win percentage is closer to 60, 65%, and 57% is a step down. I understand what you're saying, and I think that's something to be aware of, Uh, especially this is not meant to disparage anyone taking place in the SCG Tour, but I do think the skill gaps are larger than we typically see in, say, Mythic Championship events, where there's a certain baseline you have to achieve before you're playing Mythic Championships in most instances. You just have to sign up for an SCG Tour event. And the gulf between the worst player in an SCG Tour event and the best player and the gulf between the worst player at a Mythic Championship and the best player, they, they aren't really even comparable. The the gulf is much larger at an SCG Tour event. So this is a fair point.
0: Yeah, that that's all I'm I'm trying to say. It's like if you look at the numbers for Simic Nexus just on their own, I'm sure it, it will you know, talk about how like, oh, the deck's a favorite against the field or whatever. But realistically, I think that number is completely going to be disingenuous.
1: Okay. We'll have to see when the numbers come out. But I I do like your assessment of that number. I want to talk about Boros Feather now. This was a deck. Basically, there were were three decks that we were high on, right? Mono Blue, Boros Feather, Flood. Two of those pretty solid results. Although, again, if you want to talk about players who are just apt to have really positive win rates, certainly Oliver to Michael would be in that group. But true. I, I think Oliver's play and deck selection both are a huge part of why he is so good. And he is so good, by the way. I, I love watching Oliver play. Definitely been one of the bright spots of my time on the SCG tour. And this was just like the spot on deck selection. We talked about how hard the boros feather deck is able to punish any deck relying on small mana creatures. And is basically the only deck in the format that can really do so.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, the, the matchup that he lost, I believe was to Chris Johnson's team elementals deck. And this was like uh lower to the ground one with a bunch of lightning strike shocks, uh, Chandra's to buy him back big Chandra at the top end, like sideboard fries and stuff. I mean, it, This deck just has a ton of spot removal and reasonable ways to actually pressure also. So uh, probably a, a pretty bad matchup and not one that I would expect to play from the feather side.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about some of the unique aspects of Oliver's list because this is a deck we did explore with a little bit more of a close eye legion war boss over something like gideon in three drop drop spot makes a ton of sense especially when we're talking about simic nexus being the most represented deck you need to get on the battlefield quickly legion war boss allows you to do so but the key to that matchup is oliver is not messing around in the sideboard four copies of demystify ready to go ready to bust that one out, rebuy it with Dreadhorde Arcanist maybe, who knows, Uh, but there will not be any Wilderness Reclamation on the battlefield against Oliver Tomiko. I really like taking that wholesale approach to the matchup as well.
0: Yeah, he's not messing around. I mean, from my experience playing with the deck, there were a decent amount of flex slots that I was just kind of confused as to what I was supposed to be playing. I I think the list that I have built on Arena right now is like three Gideon, two War Boss. Mm -hmm. And... It doesn't really make a lot of sense to just like split them. I I do think that if Oliver was expecting a lot of Nexus, him playing three war boss, no Gideon, makes a lot of sense. Things will likely change going forward. There's probably going to be Esper popping up at some point, at which point you might want the Gideons back. Uh, But yeah, four demystifies in the sideboard in a color combination that has like a pretty weak uh sideboard at least as far as options are concerned and it's just like yeah why why not take some of these like garbage slots and just make them demystify, try and make nexus as good of a matchup as possible and it looks like he succeeded
1: yeah it's a good lesson in hard targeting your problematic matchups like if you have a bunch of fine matchups don't bring in four cards that are slight upgrades instead find your bad matchups and get four of the most efficient cards available and use that to turn the matchup on its head in postboard games
0: Right, and still has room for Gideon's in the sideboard, has some Lava Coils and some additional removal spells. And it's like, really, past that, what what do you actually need with this deck? Like, you're not trying to get super cute and do, like, this full-on sideboard transformation or anything. Oliver decided that Takali Honor Guard is not even worth playing against Risen Reef decks, which I basically agree with. And, yeah, he just, he found the optimal usage for all of his slots.
1: Yeah. Another copy of Boros Feather in the top 16 as well in the hands of Brad Carpenter. Again, we're seeing very good players picking up this archetype. Brad's list looks very different from Oliver's. On the whole, I like Oliver's a little bit better. I think it's a little bit more focused in what it's trying to do. One card though that I have liked was Tomic. Very happy, just have one copy as a two drop. Sometimes it just steals a game that you have no business winning. Brad does have the copy of Tomic that Oliver chose to skip. Maybe the only change I would make to Oliver's deck is getting one copy of Tomic back in the mix.
0: Yeah, that's fair. The the one thing that I will note about Oliver's deck, and I, I honestly think that this is a mistake that a lot of people are making, is only playing 22 land when you have Temple of Triumph. I think just having a bunch of card filtering and scrying and stuff like that, I think you would rather just be a land heavy than a land short.
1: I think it's a lesson we learned last time with the temples is that you'd rather just have more of them than fewer of them because you'll be able to talk your future lands and uh, assure you're not flooding in the late game. The deck manipulation really comes to play as the game moves on but you need a certain threshold to even make the game move on. So why not just load up in the early game and use your temple filtering to avoid those draws later on? Plus, there's so much scrying in the deck with God's Willing and uh, 10th District Legionnaire that you'll often have control over the top. Just make sure you get to start playing the game. 23 lands, probably a better place to do that.
0: Yeah, and I also think that the deck just wants to hit its fourth land drop. Like you want to be able to play Feather or War Boss with a one mana card left left up. Like you don't necessarily want to be flooded on spells because you do have like this sick engine that kind of takes over in the late game, either Dreadhorde Arcanist or Feather.
1: Yeah. Kind of surprisingly mana hungry is the Feather deck.
0: Yeah, even though its mana curve is super low. But like you just use your mana every single turn.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's keep moving our way through this topic. I think that's how we're going to go through this discussion. And we talked about the Teamer Elementals list in the hands of Chris Johnson. Thoughts on this one, Jerry?
0: Uh, A weirder take. I initially started with decks that looked a lot like this and then kind of moved away from it just because the format didn't really seem like it was in a place where you wanted a bunch of Shocks and Lightning Strikes. But that was more of like, you know, day zero type of stuff where like everyone's playing Simic and like nothing is really worth killing because it already gave them value. And if you look at this top eight with a bunch of vampires and feather and mono red, mono blue, like obviously the spot removal is huge. And I think that that is what got Chris that far.
1: Yeah, I think Chris, Chris's deck is built well for the format that showed up. I don't know if that was completely planned on Chris's part or just a happy accident because it doesn't look like the other Elementals decks we've seen whatsoever. I really haven't seen any of Overgrowth Elemental. That's an interesting little addition to this archetype. And Living Twister, also a card not seeing a huge amount of run. But this card is occasionally very, very powerful, just can take over a game on its own. So we'll have to see if that becomes stock going forward. I've certainly tended to to play the more controlling versions of Elementals, the decks that go a little bit bigger. Creeping Trailblazer has just felt like a pretty miserable card to me in most instances. Agreed. So that's one thing I really don't like in the list, but you can understand where if things are a little polarized, like on one end, you have these Nexus decks, which you just don't want to hand a bunch of turns and you know the bigger teamer setups, things like Flood of Tears... Look a little silly in the face of Nexus, as we've often talked about. You have to find some kind of way to combat that matchup. I was taking a very, very pointed approach going as far as like Cinder Vines and things like that. And I think you're priced into it if you want to have game against Nexus and you're playing mid-range elementals. Here's the other way you can try and get things done. Just get a lot more damage onto the battlefield more quickly. I think this deck is mostly still a pretty big dog to Nexus. But you probably have more of a fighting chance, whereas the other decks, it's just like, well, I need to go to my sideboard or I've got no shot. This, you're probably looking at something closer to like, I don't know, 42% in game ones, maybe 40% in game ones, where the other mid-range versions are closer to 35.
0: Yeah, maybe even lower, actually. Like, this one at least has a reasonable clock and burn spells once you start getting fog locked and has like Chandra to rebuy some of the burn spells. You have Mm -hmm. like living Twister and stuff. So like there are actual ways for this deck to actually fight through a Nexus deck. That's kind of doing its thing. The the weird thing to me is that there's Cavalier of Thorns in this deck with like nothing to really do with it. Like, I guess you rebuy an Omnath or a Chandra or something and that's fine, but it's not, not really what we've been using that card for to like, you know, get back a flood or a Hydroid crisis or something along those lines. It seems like very small ball to me.
1: Yeah, we've been all about the large mana approaches, but let's not forget one of the huge points of appeal for Cavalier of Thorns is just that ridiculous body that brick walls the entire format, basically. That has uses even in these kind of setups, and it does let you shift to that more mid range controlling role against matchups like mono red, mono blue, where you have to just step back a little bit. You're not going to get to be the aggressor. I do think Cavalier of Thorns has some merit there. It's not being maximized to the same extent. Definitely not, but still a worthwhile card. And one of the reasons I was so high on this card is it does a good job playing both those modes.
0: Yeah, it's it's just weird because... With how the deck is slanted with Creeping Trailblazer and all the burn stuff, it just seems like you would want something a little bit more aggressive in that slot. But I I do agree with you that it allows you to have like a bridge to a more defensive sideboard plan that kind of lives in your main deck. And it's like it's fine with a lot of your stuff like Living Twister Omnath. So I don't know. I just maybe like wonder if one of the other Cavaliers isn't a better choice.
1: Interesting. Yeah, maybe like Red Cavalier or something, just get a little bit more aggressive with it.
0: Yeah, I could see that.
1: We'll have to see how this deck evolves going forward. On the whole, I think Chris had a good configuration for the top eight and the tournament he faced at Worcester. We'll have to see if it stays that way going forward.
0: Yeah, and then uh, Paul in ninth place was more Planeswalker focused, had three copies of Nyssa two Tamiyo, three Hydro Crisis, just like bigger as a whole and very few spot removal spells. So you can kind of see how Chris's deck was successful against the decks that existed in the top tables, whereas Paul's kind of uh, fell off a little bit there towards the end.
1: Right. Faltering as we got down the stretch in day two. This is a lot more like what you and I have been doing. And oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I look at this list and I'm like, why Why don't you want Flood? Why, Paul? Why do you hate Flood of Tears so much? Like, are these options real? Is Mass Manipulation really a better card than Flood of Tears? And is Chandra Awakened Inferno winning you more games in the main deck than Flood of Tears? Maybe. Maybe I'm just wrong. I'm willing to to take that one on the chin. But having, like, the two lava coils as opposed to this rock-solid end game engine that you could use, I'll be honest, I don't quite get it.
0: Yeah, uh, I could see having... Flood in the the Coil Chandra slot, maybe keeping the mass manipulation. I don't know. Like Flood is is very much just like a metagame consideration card, I think. And sure, whether or not like people knew that Nexus was just going to show up in such big numbers or Simic Flash was going to show up in such big numbers, like it makes sense to actually cut Floods and play even just like mediocre cards, right? Because the Floods are almost just dead in those matchups.
1: Yeah, certainly. And the Simic Flash one is a really good point. Like against Nexus, it doesn't matter. These cards are equally as dead. So it's kind of a, a trade off. But Simic Flash totally makes sense to have spot removal as opposed to the big six mana spell, which is never, ever resolving.
0: Yeah, and I, I would think that Lava Coil over something like Lightning Strike would make make sense if you were expecting a lot of Simic Flash. Uh, Normally we see Lightning Strike because it can help like, you know, take out a Planeswalker, finish off a Planeswalker. And you Mm -hmm. don't see too many main deck Lava Coils these days. But for like night pack Ambusher, and even like Tempest Gin, it makes a lot of sense to actually have a resurgence of that card.
1: Sure. I guess here's a good spot to transition to talking about Simic Flash. You and I were of the opinion this was just worse mono blue. Yeah. It was the second most played deck in day two and its highest placing finisher, I believe, was 13th 13th place, Brandon Dempsey, and not a huge amount of representation amongst the top 32. So do we think this deck failed to convert? Is it better than we thought it was? I mean, because we're being fair. There's not a lot of mono blue aggro in the top 32 either. It's just Ross happened to carry it to a very high profile finish. I believe there's only two other mono blue aggro decks in the top 32 altogether. So Simic Flash with more representation, but I think probably more players as well, at least when it came to day two, certainly.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, I I think that there are a lot of issues with Simic Flash where you have eight four mana cards in your deck. You have a very, very awkward mana base. You're playing things like Essence Scatter, which are very hit or miss. And uh Mono Blue gets to play just as many hard counters as they basically want between Lookout's Dispersal and Wizards Retort now. So I don't really understand why you would play this deck that needs to hit four mana. And even then, like you're you're still kind of in an iffy position versus just playing mono blue, having those curious obsession I win draws, having more counter magic, lower mana curve, like. How much does adding the green actually help you? Because I don't think it's a lot.
1: It's the fear, Jerry. It's it's the fear of ceratops pushing people to bring green into the mix. Let me tell you how many copies of shifting ceratops there were in the top eight in total. There were three, and sure, there was some throughout the tournament. If you move through, you know, the top sixteen, you'll find more copies of it across these simic decks and. Yes, it's an absolute house against mono blue and you get pretty lucky to steal games against it. But sometimes they don't have it. Sometimes you either gust it. And if you believe mono blue to be positioned well at large, if you think there are going to be these mid-range Simic decks to really prey on, things like Nexus, things like Flood, mono blue still seems like a much stronger choice to me.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Ceratops is definitely a problem. But Aether Gust, I think like if you get to gust... Ceratops once I think you're, you're still a slight favorite and yep. then if you if you gust it twice like it's just game over you know yeah I I don't think you need to do weird things like I guess autumn tweeted about maybe their updated version of mono blue with noxious grasp I think is the name of the card the black right. sideboard <laughs> color hoser off of yep. just like eight dual lands and it's like yeah you you can do things like that I don't know if that's actually right or not but like if people are playing a bunch of them, because Mono Blue is so good, there are ways around it. You know, you can play the fourth Aether Gust, you can play the Noxious whatevers, and just be fine. You don't have to play like Frilled Mystic and Nightpack Ambusher.
1: Yeah. Again, my read is that if people are playing that many Ceratops, I'm just going to choose not to play Mono Blue. And I'm trying to pick a spot where Ceratops isn't the most played cyborg card. And I think Ross found that spot for this tournament and was rewarded with a nice result.
0: Yeah, and I mean, we'll see what happens uh, going forward. Whether or not people actually pick up on the fact that Mono Blue is quite good, because like, also with Simic Flash doing so well, having like such a big presence of Day Two in Worcester, like it, it basically points to the same stuff as that makes Mono Blue successful, right? Like, Simic Flash is good. Basically against the same spread of matchups that mono blue is. And I bet if a lot of those flash players played mono blue, they would have had a lot of similar success.
1: I think you're right. What do we have left in this top eight? We haven't talked about vampires yet.
0: Yeah. Only to put two
1: copies. Yeah. Only decks, put two copies in the top eight, though.
0: That's true. I mean, Zacchini with small white aggressive creatures, he's he's gonna beat you. <laughs> he just is.
1: He finds ways. Absolutely. Uh, It looks among the top 32. There's only three copies of vampires, So it did a nice job locking up those top eight spots. Not a huge amount of representation. And I don't think it's day two representation was particularly overwhelming. Uh, It also faced a mirror match in the top eight. Zachary Keeney faced off against Dustin Taylor. So only one was making it through to the semis, no matter what happened. That kind of influenced... It's positioning a little bit, possibly. Where do you see this deck going, going forward? Is it an important part of the format? Does it start to fade away uh, in the face of better options? What are your predictions for next week's stock of Orzov Vampires?
0: Uh, there's so many moving pieces. Uh, the The most interesting thing to me so far has been these the storylines for like a lot of these archetypes and a lot of these cards where... When the set first dropped, I was like, yeah, you just jam four Cerulean Drakes and just beat up on Mono Red. and then it was like, okay, no one's playing Mono Red anymore, we can stop playing these Drakes, and then going into Worcester, I was like, okay, I need to start playing Drakes again because people are playing Mono Red again, and Vampires had a very similar trajectory where I was initially very excited about uh, Soren into Champion of Dusk, and... You know, played with some initial versions. Obviously, they, they had, like, their own set of issues and everything. And I, I don't think we ever really decided on what version is best. And I think now people have just decided that they're going to play Sanctum Seer in their deck, which is – or Sanctum Seeker, which is, in my mind, not a very playable card. But, yeah, it was. It, I started very warm on Vampires and then got colder. And then I think a lot of people just, like, got warmer because – They found versions that they liked and they found ways to answer some of their problems. And it also just like kept doing well on arenas. And, you know, obviously we're retweeting a bunch of different people who hit like number one mythic with vampires and stuff. So like people are seeing deck lists that are proven to be successful and are winning and are tuned a little bit. So it certainly helps that uh, people then have like good lists to actually work with. Yeah, going forward, I think Vampire stock is going to rise a little bit, but I'm still not sold on this being like a functional archetype.
1: I I, I just don't know what to say about this deck. Honestly, my play with it has been fine. It's just fine. Like it's a fine deck. It seems like a reasonable option where you want an aggressive deck that has access to a bunch of Planeswalkers and a way to play through sweepers and the ability to grind. I buy this deck. It, it's cool. It does some really neat mid-ranges things leaning towards the aggro side, but I just don't know that that's a deck I want in this format right now. Like if Esper Control was a big part of the metagame, this deck seems awesome. Like it's exactly the type of aggro deck I want to take into something like Esper Control, but Asper's kind of a small part of the metagame right now. And I don't know what vampires. This is exactly what I said last week. I don't know what vampires is preying on right now. I still don't. I think the deck is fine, but I'm going to need to understand more about its positioning and see a spot for it to really exploit other decks before I'm picking it up for a tournament.
0: Yeah, I, I agree completely. I mean, I still think that this like there's there's gotta be a better way to build this deck. There are, there are cards just like two Vicious Conquistadors, one Vona. I'm looking at Zakini's list right now. Two Cast Down, one Mortify, two Gideon, two Ajani. Just like all of these cards don't necessarily seem right to me. I agree that the rest of the cards are probably correct, you know, but there's just like these 10 flex slots that just don't seem particularly good. And I, I don't know what exactly you're supposed to do. Like maybe you're supposed to play more spot removal, but then at that point your Legion Lieutenants get worse. So I don't know.
1: I also think you have to mention the mana base too. Like here's the 22 land deck with four copies of a five drop. Granted, we're cheating that in a lot of spots, but sometimes you do have to cast it. And also there's two four mana Planeswalkers out of your 22 land deck. And the mana is just kind of bad. Eight planes, six swamp, four godless shrine, four isolated chapel. Not the cleanest mana base you've ever seen. There's no temples because you want your lands untapped. There's no unclaimed territory because you're playing all these Planeswalkers. And there's going to be some times where your mana is just a little awkward and you really can't afford those kind of stumbles when you're trying to do this aggressive thing. So I think you're right. I think there's issues to figure out if they do get figured out. Vampires could be a top tier participant in the format. A little lower on it right now, though.
0: Yeah, same. I, I don't know. I just keep looking at it and it's like, is this just like a, a bad white weenie deck and a bad green white tokens deck? Because like that's just kind of what it seems like to me.
1: Could be. Could be. We'll have to see how it evolves going forward. One final deck to talk about in this top eight. And it's one that I I wondered if we were going to see a lot more of this deck. Because while this is the first big tournament result, the first any kind of tournament result came the day before SCG Worcester. And it was the Fandom Legends Arena Tournament, which was won by BBD playing Esper Hero. And here we see one copy of Esper Hero in the top eight, played by Benjamin Terrio, And Benjamin found an interesting addition here, Tomebound Lich. What do you think about Tomebound Lich in the Esper Hero deck?
0: I don't know. It's a sweet card. I <laughs> I have no idea if it's actually good or not. But yeah, I, I think with Esper Hero, the, the way things are shaking out now, the thing that you have to do is actually go back to basically uh, the version I wrote about like week one of war standard with all the deputy of detentions and sorens and hostage takers. Like I, I think that that version is actually good. And maybe you could play a couple of tomebound bound glitches. I don't know. Whatever. I, I, I don't think that cards inclusion really makes or breaks anything, honestly, but I think Esper is good, but it, it needs a complete overhaul, you know, like you just need to start from scratch.
1: I liked BBD's approach of maximizing Hostage Shaker in a format with Risen Reef. You could see why you want to do those type of things or stealing Cavalier of Thorns. Pretty nice get. Not a lot of main deck spot removal. As we talked about a bunch going into the tournament, only a few decks really able to leverage main deck removal. So I, I did see some cracks in the format that I thought maybe Esper Hero could take advantage of. Didn't quite come to fruition. It wasn't a super highly represented deck, especially considering it was very clearly the top dog from last format, I would say this was a bit of a falling off for Esper Hero, but still some representation scattered about the top 32 going forward. High hopes for Esper. Do you think it can figure something out to be a huge player in the metagame or is its time kind of fast? Yeah.
0: No, it's good. Look, like, look at this top eight: mono red, mono blue, uh, some crappy team or mid range deck, some crappy white aggro decks, Bant ramp. That one's tough. And then feather Esper can beat all of these decks. For sure. You just need the right pieces. And obviously, if like this is what the metagame looks like and this is what the winner's metagame looks like, you're never going to be able to nail it down with Esper, right? Like you need the metagame to shift in a certain direction so you can kind of soft target something specific. But going forward, I do think that Esper Hero definitely has the tools, even though it basically gained nothing from the set, even if you are considering two Bound Lich as a get.
1: Yeah, we'll have to see if that becomes a player in the deck. You you mentioned Bant Ramp. I'm sorry, I blanked on this. This is the one deck yeah. in the top eight we haven't spoken about yet. What do you think about this one?
0: It is exactly the same. It is it is very medium. It is a, a deck that I just kind of beat with whatever deck that I'm playing on Arena. So I just, I don't know. I never feel like this this deck is much of a threat.
1: New ad here in the form of Voracious Hydra. I think this card is interesting in giving these decks some form of removal, some way to deal with opposing creatures on the battlefield. We talked about why that would be important in the age of Risen Reef, but trying to sell me on a ramp strategy that can exist without using those incredibly powerful elementals is going to be a really difficult sell. And I have a hard time believing I want... like. Frilled Mystic and Shalai over Cavalier of Thorns and Risen Reefs and things like that. Yes. So, I, I mean, I guess this deck is fine. I just don't know again what it's exploiting at this point. It certainly is capable of doing some very powerful stuff, but there's probably another version of this archetype that's more capable of doing more powerful stuff. Is my guess.
0: I'm I'm looking at Zach Allen's Band mm-hmm. Ramp deck from the classic. A little bit different. Uh, Growth Spiral instead of Incubation Druid, some Drawn from Dreams, some Prison Realms, uh, another copy of Entrancing Melody, just fewer creatures overall. It looks like he figured out that those random four mana creatures are just kind of extraneous. I guess he still has two Frodo Mystic, but still. And I I like Zach's list, like his approach a little bit more. I also like Teferi, Withdrawn from Dreams, and Frodo Mystic because it kind of, you know covers for it a little bit. I'm not sure how often that actually comes up. I, I think I would probably just not play Frodo Mystic in this deck, period, but it is kind of nice that that exists. But uh, overall, I think I like Zaxlis a little bit.
1: I would agree, shifting more to what feels like a bit more of a controlling stance, a bit more card advantage baked in. And of course, he played at least one Cavalier of Thorns, so he doesn't have to be on my bad side. It is strange to me. I, I can't get over the fact that we have this incredibly powerful elemental package and these decks don't want it. I guess like, if people appropriately adapt, because all the talk was about Risen Reef and these big mana strategies going into the tournament, so if you start making changes to exploit that card, then you can see getting away from it. But in my experience, it's been a very difficult card to exploit. It's very hard to answer right. profitably, and I just think you want the payoff. And I see things like Growth Spiral and the Frilled Mystics we keep mentioning, and Just think you can make room for a little bit bigger elemental package in this setup.
0: Yeah, I do too. Uh, Also, Zach should be fired because he has four gross spirals in 24 land.
1: That's a a dicey balance right there. I've done it a few times. I've caught myself doing it. And then always, 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 I at least get the 25th in there. But gross spiral decks... You really want twenty six lands? That's how you make the. It's how you make the card work. And I know that's a big cost, but if you've ever cast a growth spiral and done nothing with it, you know the pain that playing twenty four lands will eventually expose you to.
0: Yeah, the, the temples help a little bit, but Zach's only playing two because he has land or elves, and that's a that's a whole other thing. I'm I'm not even sure how many temples these decks should be playing, but I'm pretty sure it's more than two.
1: Temple adaptation or excuse me, a temple adoption at this point feels a little low given how powerful we know those cards to be. I think it's a consequence of the shape of the format. And as things get more and more figured out, it wouldn't surprise me to see more temples.
0: Yeah. I I think if this mythic championship were standard, you would probably see a lot more temples in decks just in general. Like the, the average would go up by at least two.
1: Makes sense to me. Well, anything else you want to say about standard? We kind of just wanted to do a quick check in and ended up talking for quite a bit of time, but that's what happens when standard is new and exciting and we're getting our first cracks at it.
0: Yeah, I, I think mono red is quite good. If people are not playing Cerulean Drake, I think there are decks like Zach Allen's that have like paradise druid land elves that are very weak to chain whirler and stuff like that. So people are currently sleeping on that. Y'all y'all can't do that anymore. Uh, also, mono blue is quite good. I, I remember a point where people were like main decking crawl harpooners and that card is just completely absent. So uh, something has to change there also. You know, you have Shifting Ceratops, Veil of Summer showing up in some decks, but maybe that number needs to go up too.
1: We'll have to see how things adapt as we head into Magic Fest Denver, which is this weekend. I will be there for about an yes. hour on Friday morning and oh then no. I'll leaving. No, I yeah, didn't Why? mean to get you too excited there. I'm I'm actually just passing through Denver uh, on my way to go visit my wife's family out in Steamboat Springs. And I happen to be there at that time and going to float through the GP, but not staying for any extended period of time.
0: Where is a Steamboat Springs?
1: Steamboat Springs is about four hours, I think, west of Denver by car. I'm flying out there from Denver, though. And it just worked out where when we had to fly out on Thursday, we couldn't get the flight. There's only like two flights a day that go into Steamboat Springs. We couldn't get the flight at an appropriate time on Thursday. So we had to stay overnight and then are leaving Friday. And that's my period of okay. time where I'll be stopping by the Magic Fest. But I don't really want to get into it again. I certainly could have modified my trip to make some time to play in the Magic Fest if I wanted to. But... uh give me a reason to play magic fests and then I would have, but until then I'm, I'm just not prioritizing it to the extent that I could be in the city hosting the magic fest and I'll just leave. Cause you get, you got to give me more than a big PTQ quite frankly.
0: Oh, that was going to be my selling point was it's a big PTQ.
1: That's, that's not enough, Jerry. <laughs> I need Just a bit more than a big, PTQ oh, be surprised. you surprised. Yeah.
0: All right, man, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about modern. I've, been not rigorously testing what's the opposite of rigorously
1: occasionally sparsely, I, don't
0: know. sparsely. I have been I have been sparsely testing for this tournament and it's it's not gone well I'll be I'll be totally honest but that's because I'm playing a bunch of bad decks and you know just updating the various is it phoenix deck lists I have saved on my computer without actually playing with them because it'll it'll be fine right No matter what, no matter what 75 Phoenix cards I register, it'll be fine.
1: It feels like this is an incredibly important part of the modern testing process is that you have to like set aside two weeks to just play with all the garbage one more time and be like, oh yeah, that's right. This deck is garbage. And I knew that already. And then you get to put it off to the side and never touch it again until the next PT where you have to inevitably play some more with some more garbage.
0: All right. So these are the decks that I've recently crossed off my bucket list. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. And this, this list is not not the full list, but the, these are the ones that I actually played with. Okay, so Esper Death Shadow, Titan Shift, and uh, a, a few different Rakdos decks, a lot of them with Lightning Skelemental and Red horde Arcanist, some with Hollow One. Which, which deck would you like me to talk about first?
1: Tell me about the Skelemental. I have to know. I, I mean, I've seen it floating around. I basically know what you're up to. And I want this to be good, and I I know it's garbage. So tell me why it's garbage.
0: Yo, play against Jund, and just mm. see what happens. They just embarrass you. They just right. do everything that you do, but so much better. And their cards are so good, and they'll have, they'll have like a Nile spell bomb in their deck post border. Like God forbid a scavenging Ooze, and you just can't win. And then they play a Tarmogoyf, and you have a lightning bolt. Just nothing, nothing works out for you ever.
1: I buy that. And you probably signed up for that as soon as you put Lightning Skellamental into your deck, but this is the world you've chosen to live in. I hope someday I do get to unearth a Lightning Skellamental. That's really that's something that's on my bucket list for sure. But I take it Rakdos, not impressing you not going to be what you're playing at the mythic
0: God, I I want it to be good so badly.
1: I know. Me too.
0: And it I could just never seem to make anything come together, you know?
1: What about its close cousin, Jund? You mentioned Jund just embarrassing you, and Jund has been gaining a tremendous amount of metagame share recently. It seems like people are very excited about the archetype one more time with the addition of Season Pyromancer, maybe an occasional on Earth, but most importantly, Renin 6. How do you see Jund as it stands now?
0: A lot of Renin 6s. Uh, I would mm-hmm. play a lot of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Jund and Monored Phoenix are two of the decks that I want to work on, but haven't really. And I think Jund is probably one of those decks where I can just eyeball and don't have to actually play with it because I just have infinite Jund reps under my belt. And I was looking at, uh, updating that today. And, uh, I, I don't think I'm doing anything like too crazy compared to anyone else. I'm just absolutely not touching he- hex drinker and, not touching Dark Confidant. I do think that Jund is going to be like reasonably popular at this PT and they're all going to have like three or four Ren and Six in their deck.
1: Yeah, having vulnerability to that card. Tough sell right now. Your deck at least needs to account for it if you're playing something that's very soft to the one damage. One of the questions I've had with that card is how much do you alter the mana base in order to maximize Ren and Six? Are you playing a Baron more? Or are you just trying to get by on like a couple of nurturing peatlands. How far do you have to go to really maximize Run and Six?
0: So I looked through a lot of different Joan lists today and just kind of compared them. And, and this was like after I made my initial list, it was basically just like checking my work, you know, seeing how crazy I was. Like, I, I don't really want Raging Ravine in my deck, but basically everyone is playing two. I wanted one Baron more, and I saw one deck list that had two. And I also want one or two nurturing peat lands. And most uh, decks had one or two copies. And I also want hella fetch lands, which mm-hmm. is kind of why I don't think you can really play Raging Ravine. Uh, also, Raging Ravine is just like kind of mopey, but it might be a necessary evil. I don't know. But yeah, I, I want a bunch of fetch lands. Yuta Takahashi also tweeted about this, where he was like, if I play John again, I want Ted. 10 fetch lands. And I, I think that that number is really high. I, I think, just think it's like very difficult to actually get to that number. But I think that eight or nine is completely reasonable. And I think like a lot of the lists I saw, I had like seven, which is not great.
1: I hope that this is a deck that you could pick up and play for this Mythic Championship. It's It's been so long since it was a correct choice. And it's quite frankly been a long time since it's been a reasonable choice and having this playstyle be good in modern says very good things about the health of the modern format, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. And uh, Ari made a, a tweet about this, I think, today or yesterday, talking about how he likes the direction that modern is headed because of Narset and Karn the Great Creator basically just making it so there are more creatures on the battlefield both to like protect these planeswalkers and to attack them. And Mm -hmm. I think that's correct. I think that's accurate. I, I don't think that these cards are necessarily like fun to play with, but we're still adapting to them, right? Like it is going to be very rare, I think, for this Mythic Championship where people are just getting locked out by Karn over and over and over again, you know?
1: Yeah, we'll have to see how that plays out. I I think Karn has cooled off from its high and is now just another pillar of the format that you need to account for. And like you said, way to account for that. Creatures have presence on the battlefield. Or, or Jerry, let me mention this way of accounting for three mana and four mana Planeswalkers. How about winning the game on turn one? Is that something that you have any interest in Or is that something you believe to be an actual thing people will do at this mythic championship?
0: Do you mean winning on turn one or like shame conceding on turn five after casting one spell?
1: Well, both those are on the table. If people do choose to play this Neo brand deck, I've made my opinion on this deck clear. Even after the London Mulligan, I think it is just way too inconsistent to be a serious contender in the format. And I I think you're probably self-sabotaging by choosing to play this deck, but you're taking a lot of your results out of your hand and just kind of hoping to get lucky, and some people might be in the market for that, because let's not forget, there's people who just don't play modern. Like There's people who have no experience with the format whatsoever, and they might be content playing Solitaire for a full day. I don't know. I, I hope there's not large representation for Neoform, but if you've played Magic Online any amount, you know this deck is well represented in the queues.
0: Good God. Do I know that? I, <laughs> a lo- so a lot of my testing experience has been build new deck, join league, get turned two twice, not play moto for the rest of the day.
1: Doesn't that tell you you should be doing something with it? Like, shouldn't you be maximizing this deck? Shouldn't you be the one figuring it out and making it work more
0: consistently? No, because, okay. So Matsugan already did the work. OK, I trust Sugan to make the most consistent version up to and including one safe request that he possibly could. And that list is just stock now. People have like not changed the card, presumably because it is a good version of a good deck or a good version of that deck. And the, the math tells me that it's inconsistent and R&D did not ban it. And they have access to the numbers for the deck. So that tells me that those numbers are not very good. I mean, it's possible that I should not be doing things like, oh, you know, look at all these, you know, the the top 15 goldfish decks or whatever, like Titan Shift is good against 13 of them, right? And then I joined the queue with Titan Shift today, got turned to twice by Neo Brand, took a breather, came back, got turned to by Pure Steel Paladin, just (laughs) quit the match. Didn't even bother playing game oh, two. God. And it's just like, okay, like obviously I'm, I'm doing something wrong here. You know, like I need to have like inquisition of Kozilek in my deck or force of negation, probably just one of those two cards.
1: So I talked about in my article today that the fallacy of modern being a turn four format is something we certainly should have moved beyond at this point. It, it's not real. That's not really what modern is. And if you think it is, you just haven't played a bunch of modern recently. The question I wanted to ask, should it be like, should there be harder steps to just lock down that turn four as the the point where you can win the game? Should Gristlebrand have been banned already? Should even yeah. something as stupid as Pure Steel Paladin just bite it so these things can't happen? Like you just foreclose that possibility of the turn two win and modern to the purest extent possible, regardless of how inconsistent, how mediocre the deck might be. Just don't let this be part of the experience.
0: So it, it's like the the KCI or eggs thing. And like granted KCI's win rate was astronomical, but like when you are quote unquote playing against that deck, it's not fun, you know, like right. you, you are not doing anything. It is not an enjoyable experience. And Sensei's Divining Top is like another thing that comes to mind, Right. I I think it would be fine if it was like, okay, turn to infinite combo, but it's like, I literally have to like F6 against the Gristlebrand decks because I know they have a fail rate. Right. And then I just have to sit there. It's just, it's really stupid. Yeah. It, it might feel bad being on the, the losing end of the coin flip or whatever. And I, I definitely get that. I appreciate that. I sympathize with that. But yeah, like, why is Gristlebrand in the format? What is it doing that is making people have fun. I I don't think it is.
1: I think if you handed me the reins to the modern ban list, I would ban like 10 cards and just reset and get back to a place where it is actually a turn four format because it feels like we live in a world that pretends it still is in a lot of instances. And sometimes it is. And those games of magic are really good. I've played really, really good games of modern that were interactive and fun and interesting and really some of the best games that magic has to offer and they're just mixed in with the stuff you're describing the i queued up and got obliterated by pure steel paladin twice that happens as you're testing modern and it can really sour you on the format and i don't know why it has to be part of the experience short of at this point we've done it for so long and priced so many people in that fans carry with them a huge cost I don't know. Maybe the time for this was like a couple of years ago and things should have just been clamped down a little bit more firmly with some philosophical goals as opposed to win rate and this card is busted type approaches to the modern bad list.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, when, what happened? What what got printed? Maybe maybe it was just like Riss Brand got printed or whatever. And I started playing around with like Gorgos Vengeance through the Breach decks and Granted, those sorts of decks have gotten a lot of tools since then, and those decks are like so much better than they were back then. But like back then, people were playing like Steplinks and Delver of Secrets in Zoo, so mm-hmm. you know the, the format was a little different. But yeah, when when that card was printed, it's like okay, like I, I get that my deck is inconsistent, but at some point, like Gorio's Vengeance and or Brand is going to be a problem, right? So like, why not just do something about it now when like you said, you know, like now people are priced in, right? Like people spent X amount of money on a pure steel Paladin deck and you you can't just ban it. And maybe you shouldn't ban every single thing that is like capable of winning on turn two or even turn three. I don't know, but it it is certainly very dumb. And it's just like, I don't even like care about my money. I just want my time back. You know, it's like, (laughs) what, what was the point of all this? Right? Like, yeah. Okay. You, You beat me, take my 10 tickets, that's fine. Can I just move on with my life, please?
1: I look at it the exact same way, but I understand that's not everyone's priority. So I won't impose my goals for the game on everyone else. It's fine if people don't feel this way and this is the modern they want to play. I'm just saying, if you handed me the keys, this would be something I would explore. It's never going to happen. It's kind of silly and off topic. So why don't you bring us back on topic? There's got to be something that is impressing you at this point, right? Something you are leaning towards playing any philosophical goals as far as your approach to this PT? Is there like a portion of the metagame you want to hard target or is there just a type of strategy you're really interested in?
0: I think last modern MC, I had a very, very good handle on the metagame to, to the point where like my numbers were like plus or minus a couple percent for almost every deck. And for this one, I just have no idea because modern horizons came out and a deck just got banned and everything previously was like warping around that deck. And now I'm just kind of completely lost. Uh, I do think that there's going to be like a lot of Jund and Phoenix and Azorius control. I, I think that there will be some humans, but I think it's weaker. I think that Tron will probably not show up in big numbers. Maybe like Eldrazi Tron might even be bigger than it. But other than that, like, dude, I don't know. What am I supposed to be doing? Do do I, do I have to play Inquisition of Kozilek or Force of Negation? Is that a must or is that just like me being all, all mopey?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know how many people are willing to just put their, their chances the up to fate. One. That's true. That's true. And maybe you want to say, I gave myself that out, even if you weren't supposed to, statistically speaking. You want to have that modicum of control so you can say, at least I tried. Main deck Force of Negation looks pretty good in some spots. I'll say that. And Inquisition has a good deck behind it. I think that you're not priced into playing those cards... For themselves, I think the fact that they have reasonable supporting cast behind them at this point makes me want to really see if that's what I'm supposed to be doing, if there's good reasons oh, to take yeah. on those decks. And yeah, my starting no, point course. would be Jund and Azorius Control, just because I knew I had that in my back pocket. Azorius Control, I still have my baseline complaints about, which I will always have. I have those complaints while recognizing it's a completely fine choice for this particular MC, I still am curious about brought back. I don't know if people are messing with it and it's just garbage, or if I think it hasn't bad. really been. Expo- you think it's just completely unplayable?
0: I mean, I don't think it's unplayable. I just think that the like the situations are just rare, not very likely to actually happen. And yeah. it, yeah, it, it's just like a nonsense card.
1: Yeah, maybe you know, it's maybe it's reasonable, but not determinative of any particular change in the deck like it's it's fine to play one and you'll find good spots for it and you'll get paid off on it but ultimately you're doing so without altering matchup percentages which is a weird thing to say but maybe it's just about versatility and play patterns that you give yourself access to that ultimately aren't really changing anything all that dramatically and then you say well what did I do this for
0: no I, I think realistically what is going to happen is there are going to be situations where you can get value from it but you're gonna have to spend your mana actually interacting with your opponent instead
1: okay Okay, so maybe that's just a miss. If that's the case, all of my structural issues with the deck remain, but recognizing that there is a pressure on the format. Maybe I'd just swallow those structural issues in this instance. Uh, I'd also want to know more about how the Jun matchup has changed with the addition of Ren and Six. I've heard people say very positive things from the Jun side that Ren and Six is a complete game changer. And I've heard people say from the Azorius Control side, it doesn't matter at all. So what's the truth? Probably somewhere in the middle. Some games it's good, some games it's bad. But I would want to test that out for myself.
0: Yeah, I think... Juns gets a little bit better in the matchup. I mean, just the fact that it's a two mana card that you know slips Matters. under their counter magic is is very difficult to deal with, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. But two things with Azorius control. I think you should either be playing Astrolabe and Ice Fang or playing Mishra's Bobble Terminus Monastery Mentor.
1: Love Monastery Mentor. Have you messed with those decks at all at this point? Is it just something in your head to do?
0: The the quaddle thing I have not messed with. Uh, I mean it, it fundamentally changes like very little about the deck. I just think that you have like this wall of omens type thing that you can path in creatureless matchups and mm-hmm. Astrolabe is a card that you can use with Teferi Time Raveler when there's like not a good thing to actually bounce to give yourself like a little divination and it just like makes the mana super easy I wish there was a more impactful green card that you would also pick up on the splash but I, th- I think it is just quaddle and then having like more interaction against humans because it, it always felt like that deck was a little light in that matchup in game one to me
1: okay do you think you get your snow permanence online early enough? for it to matter in the humans matchup. That's one thing that's come up for me a few times. The fact that you just like are priced into getting basic and you're talking about getting green basic, blue basic, and then hopefully like blue white land, blue white land from that point. So you can still cast cryptic, assuming you're playing cryptic, which I think is certainly up for debate. And I wouldn't be playing it in high numbers. I'll tell you that much.
0: I, I would play two or so. I mean, once you have quadle, you could also go to like Ojutai's command if you want to like scapeship yeah. style. I'm, I'm I've, not sure I've if seen I'm I'm not sure if I'm there yet, but uh, if you have Astrolabe, I think it it makes that a a lot easier. Okay.
1: Interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing your results with those new takes on Azorius Control. You know if I can play Control in Modern, I'm going to be a very happy camper. I desperately want to do so. I try every few months, and uh, I, I come back to the same complaints every time, and I'm desperate for a way for those complaints to be erased.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I tried Esper Shadow. It's the same type of thing. It's like I I have this love affair with Death Shadow, where it was good to me exactly one time, mm-hmm. and it has just been god awful for me ever since. And it's it's got a lot of new tools, and it fundamentally alters how the deck should be played and how it should be built. And that took a little bit to actually get used to. But at the end of the day, I don't think that Ranger Captain Navios is like a big enough upgrade to make up for like all the bad stuff, you know, just like it being a slower deck, uh, it having a lot of three mana cards now, and it relying on having like as many black sources as possible while also having two blue sources and two white sources. Like even, even though you're fine, like fetch shocking, if your opponent interacts with your mana at all, you're, you're just going to lose.
1: Right. No, very fair complaint.
0: So, yeah, I, I have Phoenix and I also have like, you know, Mardu if, I have some weirdo mental breakdown or whatever and decide that that is a good choice. But yeah, it's, it's probably playing Phoenix and just trying to guess as best as I can for what people are going to play and then just hope it all lines up. And I, I think that's kind of modern for you.
1: Nice to have a very, very solid option in your back pocket for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is the one with the giant targets on on its head. So.
1: That is true. But things could change as we lead into the MC. It only takes a little Twitter storm for things to get kind of thrown on its ear. Somebody puts up a good result with a Jund deck and maybe everything looks completely different before we head into that tournament.
0: Yeah. that's that's another problem too, is that Jund is like kind of hard to beat with Phoenix.
1: Okay. Well, we'll see if you can figure that matchup out.
0: It's not looking good. Anyone have any ideas? Hit me.
1: (laughs) I like this part. I think this was the thing for the last Modern PT as well, where there's just a begging stage you go through on the podcast where it's like, please, somebody just message me and solve this for me.
0: The messed up thing is that no one ever hooks it up.
1: Greedy. After all the advice you've laid on people over the years, no one's here to save you. Although, wait a second. Weren't you handed your second place Modern Decklist basically- A couple days before the event
0: yeah but that wasn't uh via begging for it on the podcast
1: okay that was a different form of begging
0: I had literally like been playing in a league with Mardu when that happened
1: right I remember we had talked about it on the podcast prior to that
0: yeah I think I was like 2-1 in the league and I was like this deck's kind of dope but yeah, uh, Mattia did have five cards that were different that I liked, so uh, that was kind of the the selling point for me.
1: And those five cards were good enough for a second place.
0: Yeah, it's not bad. I'll take I'll take a repeat, I guess. I'll sure, even take third not? this time.
1: <laughs> Just progressively work your way down the top eight scale.
0: Yeah, that's fine.
1: Yeah, I'm okay I agree with
0: that. That's that's the one. Uh, the one I don't have. I have a, a losing top eight and a first and a second. So. We need to complete the the quad. Let's do it. It's probably not going to be this one, honestly. But yeah, <laughs> uh, that is going to be it for the podcast this week. Uh, we do have a question, and every week we solicit the fine folks in our Discord for a question. The uh, winner, uh, the person who asked uh, our favorite question between me and Brian, is going to be the recipient of an Arena Deckless enamel pin. And you can got, not get those anywhere else
1: but here. By asking us questions. The most exclusive pins on the planet.
0: And our, our favorite question this week comes from Mason Clark, who asked a, a pretty good question a month or two ago, too. And Mason asks How much do you value clean mana over powerful multicolored decks in the abstract? Good examples in this standard format are Boros, Feather versus Naya Feather, Mono Blue versus Simic Flash, and Simic Manipulation versus Bant Ramp.
1: I really like this question because this wasn't the way I had considered these decisions before. But in all three of the instances that Mason's talking about there, I basically prefer the cleaner version. I prefer Boros Feather over Naya Feather. I prefer Mono Blue versus Simic Flash. Simic Manipulation versus Ramp, I have less of an opinion on because I'm not high on either deck. But on the whole, I place a tremendous, tremendous value on clean mana and just being able to execute my game plan. And I, I want to point that out because even while I think it's correct in the instances listed here, I do think it may be a weakness of mine. I may tend towards clean mana a little bit too often and unwilling to take those chances when a little bit dirty mana base really pays big dividends. In the case of the present standard, I'm starting to see some decks that I've discarded early on in the format be really amplified by the addition of a third color, something like Scapeshift was kind of unplayable in its two-color Simic version that I first started with. But as it becomes a Bant deck and you gain access to Teferi, it looks more promising. It gets some play patterns that I think really dealt with a lot of the problems it had previously. To the same point, our first approach to the Elementals decks, the Flood decks, were two-color decks. And it was when I branched out into a third color with Omnath, honestly, at great hesitation that I was rewarded with the deck I was super excited about and really into. So for me, I certainly trend towards cleaner mana. And I think going forward, I want to be more conscientious of instances where that may be limiting my success because it's not always correct. Even if that's my default reaction, I do have to still be open to the times where it's not going to be the correct approach.
0: Yeah, I, I mostly uh, fall on your side. And so I, when was this like 2012 when when Flash was a thing? I took Adam Prozac's blue white Flash deck, top eight of a GP with it, but got just massacred by red black zombies because I had no way to kill like a Grave Crawler or a Joross Messenger or whatever. And then there was a GP the next weekend where I added red to my deck for Pillar of Flame and some other removal spells, and I got I got tenth. My result got worse, but the deck overall just became much better, much stronger. And you see those situations happen every once in a while. And for these specific uh, examples that Mason shows, like Boros Feather versus Naya, the green cards that you get are things like we talked about last weekend uh, or last week where they don't really mesh with the overall game plan. And I think that adding green for those cards specifically is just a bad idea because it doesn't help your deck. And with mono blue versus Simic Flash, it's kind of the same thing where instead of playing these four mana cards, I'd rather just have one mana blue cards, right? And to some degree, the decision comes down to, well, the mana is not worth it. But also sometimes it's just like, oh, this is just a bad decision to add this. In the case of uh, Simic Flood versus Teamer Flood, Omnath added a lot, and your your sideboard options open up a decent amount too by adding red. So I think that that one's kind of a slam dunk. And then Simic Manipulation versus Bantz, I mean, if if you need a powerful thing to be doing on turn three and you need reasonable sideboard options, I think playing white for Teferi and Prison Realm and stuff like that is completely reasonable and probably helps the deck a decent amount too, uh, kind of similarly to the uh, Simic Flood decks. So... I would caution against uh, not necessarily just being like, oh, I'm typically against adding a third color, so I'm not, you know, either I'm not going to do it or in your case, you're saying like, oh, maybe I should be more open to this. But like also just be cognizant of whether or not adding a color actually is, you know, making your deck better. Is it actually an improvement, even aside from like the mana considerations?
1: Yeah. And a lot of the question here is like, can you bear the issues that the deck currently has? And in the case of mono blue versus Simic, like we mentioned, the only conceivable upgrade I see there is outs to shifting Ceratops. You can play around that card. And granted, the four mana Flash Wolf is a very powerful magic card but you just don't need it. It doesn't make your deck significantly better having access to it. You're able to play a very reasonable game plan without access to that, or what do I want to call it? Mystic snake, frilled mystic. I just reverted 10 years somehow in my head. Without either of those cards, you're still able to execute the same game plan. You're just getting a very narrow answer to one very narrow thing. Whereas broader editions that you're speaking about that are successful go a little bit wider than that. And they They add a new dimension to the deck, a new important play pattern to the deck, not a play pattern for the sake of having an additional option.
0: Yeah, I mean, Nightpack Ambusher makes you a little bit better against red and green creature decks, but you can increase your percentage against those decks in different ways. Mm -hmm. And Nightpack Ambusher versus Curious Obsession is just not even close in my mind. It's just not.
1: Yeah. I'm right there with you. I, I see it the exact same way and make sure this is your only way to get those percentage points basically. Like I think the splash has to be further down on the list than reasonable cards in color before you're really looking to diversify in this fashion.
0: Yeah. And at this point, I mean, we we have things like Surge Mare and Aether Gust and Cerulean Drake and even uh, Entrancing Melody. Right. Just allow you to make up those percentage points against those sort of decks basically as as much as you want, you know, like however many slots you can afford to devote to those decks. So the, the age old adage of, you know, don't play a worse version of something else certainly applies here. And I do think that the, you know, getting to play 19 or 20 basic islands versus 24 clunky blue green lands, when your mana costs are also like very spread out all over the place, like, that does amount for some of it, but I also think that like if I could play mono blue or you know if, if Pack ambusher were just a blue card, you know, would I play this like clunkier version of it? I don't think I would. So then what's the point? Yeah, well said. Yeah. So uh awesome question from Mason. This is, you know, now thinking back, like people have been doing this with like four colored red Horde versus saltai and, and stuff like that. Like this standard format has been the, the amount of colors that people play has been very prominently displayed in the standard format, right? Where it's like, you know, is this two color deck better or this three color version of basically the same thing. And no one has really talked about it yet so far. And uh, I, I really like this question because, you know, it actually forces us to think about it and discuss it when it was just something that we just glossed over previously.
1: For sure. Props to you, Mason.
0: And that's, that's why we pick Mason multiple times. Mason is great
1: multiple time pin recipient. Oh, actually this is his first pin, right? His his previous yeah, one was yeah. under old old payouts, the old game podcast sleeves.
0: Yeah, and I I still own those sleeves. They're coming Mason, I swear. But Brian, you can sign us out.
1: That's game. <sighs> Good luck!